This is the Education Gadfly Show. Gratefully for me, you hired me way back when. That was a great decision you made, Greg. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. You heard the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. Now, please join me in welcoming our special guest for this week, Greg Vanerick. Greg, welcome to the show. Hey, Mike. Good to be with you. Greg is a good friend of mine going back many years, one of Fordham's original founders, along with Checker Finn, and the author of our new report, Schooling COVID-19, Lessons from Leading Charter Networks from Their Transition to Remote Learning. Greg, it is so great to have you on the show. You were at Fordham way in the pre-podcast era. Can you believe that? Time flies. Things have changed dramatically, but some things don't change too, and that's nice to see. Yeah, I think what Fordham is now something like 23 years old, and you were there at the creation, and gratefully for me, you hired me way back when. That was a great decision you made, Greg. It actually was, and so it's been amazing to see what's happened since that time. Oh, you're too kind. You're too kind. Well, Greg has done all kinds of cool stuff since then, including writing the book on charter schools with Checker and Bruno Mano way back when, Charter Schools in Action. And he also spent a decade with his family in Sweden. His wife, Christina, is from Sweden, and so you were over there learning the language and having an amazing adventures and now back stateside. So doing some great stuff. And it's great to have you with us, Greg. We, of course, are so excited to talk about this new report that we have on some of the big charter management organizations, the charter networks, and how they crushed the COVID challenge last spring. I will say, Greg, when we started talking about this idea of doing this report, I thought it was mostly just to get some of this down for the historical record did not think that we would need its lessons for remote learning going forward. And lo and behold, here we are getting back to school. And some estimates are that something like half of kids in America, at least, are going to be spending a significant amount of time this fall, if not beyond, doing remote learning. So hopefully this will be helpful to people as we release it and as people take a look at some of the lessons from these charter schools. So let's talk all about that in Ed Reform Update. All right, Greg. So let's start with some of the basics. You went out and you interviewed folks from eight leading charter school networks, talking to their their CEOs, some school leaders, some teachers, even a few parents, try to understand what it was like this past spring when they had to suddenly switch to remote learning. Some of those networks, of course, big names people know, KIPP DC, Achievement First, Uncommon Schools, Success Academy, Rocketship, Noble, DSST, which used to stand for Denver School of Science and Technology. Who am I forgetting? Did I cover all of them? Idea Public Schools. Did you get that one? Thank you. Idea Public Schools, of course. Together, these networks serve almost 150,000 kids. Of course, it's more than that if you count all the KIPP schools across the country. We focused on KIPP DC. But, Greg, you know, you came out with, really five big lessons of things that these schools did well. A couple of them were things that other schools, traditional public schools did also, though these networks seem to do them particularly well. That was to quickly get technology into the hands of students. And it was to make sure the kids were being fed, that they were getting the nutrition that they needed. And some of these networks also raised big bucks in order to provide other social services to their students and families in times of need. 
Let's focus for our short conversation, Greg, on a few of the things that these charter schools did that perhaps were less common than other schools around the country. The first one really was that they reached out to families and kids regularly, including in an individualized way. In other words, they picked up the phone and they called people. They sent individual emails. They had individual Zoom calls with folks. Tell us a little bit about that, some examples of that that you saw and why that was so important. Yeah, well, it was really striking how thoughtfully and systematic they were in reaching out to students and parents. They're also checking in with their staff, of course, because there's risk and a lot of issues on that side. And one of the drivers, I think, that allowed them to do this well was they had uh, pre-existing systems of advisories, an advisor system or counselors in place with a small number of people that were already reaching out to regularly, meaning daily and weekly. And so that was very useful in terms of rapid reconnaissance, because one of the things that was so striking about this is there was kind of the fog of war. There was so much uncertainty at the beginning. The kids, they're normally just in school. And all of a sudden, a lot of school districts around the country just struggled with where are the kids? How do we get in touch with them and who needs what? And a lot of the contact management systems are obsolete or they've got old information. But having this regular touch point with sort of deep relationships with your advisor meant that they could do rapid recon on how are you doing? What do you need? What's going well? And then you could update them. You could communicate what the deal is with remote learning, when it's starting, how it's working. And then you could also use that actually to gather feedback so that you could rev, you could go through a feedback loop and figure out what are the themes that we're getting here of what's not working. And so they're Mm -hmm. using meetings, video conference meetings. They're using calls, emails, apps for this with their parent check-in, et cetera. And so they were really thoughtful about communicating frequently and checking in on this basis. And that goes Mm -hmm. back to the wellness and the social, emotional, and the other factors, just to make sure that there was a foundation of the basic things in place so that they could learn. And you talk about being able to make adjustments. For example, they got feedback that in some cases, the Zoom lessons, the live lessons, they were going on too long. Kids couldn't keep their attention span. Or you know, maybe if there were tech issues that people needed. Certainly, I know that in the traditional public school sector, maybe other charter schools, you hear parents complaining that they got a lot of communication. They got a lot of emails all the time about this, that, the other thing. It was almost overwhelming. But those tended to be out in mass. What they weren't getting was a phone call from their child's teacher or something specifically tailored to them, like you tended to see in some of these other schools. But it does seem like it's something that all schools could do, that you could ask some of the staff to call a whole bunch of kids every day. I think about, well, what are gym teachers doing while remote learning is going on? Trying to do some of this remotely, but come on, surely they have some extra time or some of the other specials teachers or administrative staff, or there's other people in the building, not just the classroom teachers who could be taking on some of these roles and at least finding the kids who aren't even logging in, but otherwise calling folks, checking in, asking how they're doing. As you say, Greg, socially, emotionally, are they having issues picking up the food? Is that going okay? Are they having tech issues? Really reaching out, forming that relationship. It seems like most schools, I think, would have some kind of advisory system or homeroom or counselor system. So this should be able to be replicated, no? I think that's right. 
one of the great themes that came through here is really their ability to kind of replicate as much as possible of what's happening in a regular school, albeit while you're doing it virtually through remote learning. And if you think about a regular school, there is this, even if it's not a formal system of advisors or counselors, I mean, obviously there are counselors in place, particularly in secondary, but there are teachers and coaches walking around the building, custodians checking Mm -hmm. in those sort of informal touch points. And what you saw was these charter networks Sure, many of the advisors were teachers, but they also deployed other staff in terms of the management team and other uh, professionals working in the buildings. And so they had a punch list of outreach because there was this real learning curve at the beginning. You have to sort of stabilize the patient. And this kind of intimacy that comes from those personal check-ins with the Mm -hmm. parents, with the kids, to show them that you care, that you want to know how they're doing to ask them what they need, and then to follow up. That was the other thing that was interesting in terms of the findings from the 40 interviews and the other research where we gathered their document was, as you well know, a lot of these organizations are really effective, not only schools, but also organizations and their learning organizations. So what they did was they built on top of the advisor system and these personal check-ins data and dashboards, where you would actually write down what you learned, and it would sort of be gathered in Google documents and surveys, in addition to the kind of email surveys that were going out in some cases once a week. And so they're able to really roll this up and look at not just anecdotally this and that, but kind of see a larger picture emerging systematically through this kind of outreach. All right. The second big lesson that we can take from these charter schools was that they tried to maintain the semblance of a regular school day and regular grading practices. Now, that doesn't mean that the kids were sitting in front of the computer from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. necessarily, but there was an expectation that kids were doing school for the normal school day time and that teachers were also engaged in instruction for that time in one way or another and that the work would be graded. What was so important about that, that these networks were able to to do that? Well, I think this is a very unnerving situation. There was the shell shock for everybody, for parents, for kids. And rocket ship, Preston Smith talked about the toxic stress that flows from a crisis like this, where there's so many unknowns, there's so many people struggling in terms of their health, financially, in terms of uncertainty. And school is already an emotionally difficult place for many students. And so this kind of coming in and getting everybody to take a deep breath and sort of put in place, okay, here's what the plan is. Here's what we're doing. And here's what your role is. And here's what you don't have to do as a parent because the teachers Mm -hmm. are taking care of that. And students, we're going to guide you through it. And if there's tech issues, here's how to go. So that was really, really important again in sort of taking a breath creating a foundation. I really love how KIPP DC riffed off of Maslow's famous hierarchy of needs. He had this pyramid where you start with basic survival elements and you move all the way up the pyramid towards self-actualization. And with KIPP DC, they said in remote learning, their crisis response starts with, are students safe and fed? That's level one. And then do they know that they're loved and missed? 
Do they have the coping skills to deal with the crisis? Do they have access to the technology, the materials? And then finally, up at level five is, are they learning? And so you can't presume, you can't get to the higher order stuff. And so one of the keys for them to be able to move up to that hierarchy was starting with a set of strong, clear, remote school design principles. And you saw this uniformly across the eight charter networks that we studied, where they said very simply in one page, how is this going to work? And how does this fit with our curriculum and our systems and simplicity? And what are our top priorities? And then from there, you could fill in the teachers had some flexibility based on that basic structure. It's kind of the commander's intent that you talk about in the military. We want to take the hill. And sometimes you need to make adjustments. And so other people can make adjustments as long as you're all aligned around the clear design principles. And then that led to a focus on, well, how are we going to do attendance? What are we going to look at in terms of engagement? Are we going to do grading? And the answer was yes. In all cases, are we doing assessment? And again, trying to replicate as much of regular school as possible once you've gotten through the, do they have the meals? Do they have the devices? Do they have the access? And they did all of that very quickly, by the way. It was this incredibly rapid surveying, rapid deployment, so they could get to this recreating the structure of the day and using grading. Mm -hmm. And back to the Maslow's hierarchy, they did not buy into the notion that because things were so hard and challenging for kids and families and teachers that therefore, well, we're only going to do school for an hour or two a day. They understood that getting back to something that felt like normal was going to be super important for kids' emotional health and, of course, give more opportunity for learning as well. Can I just jump in? Because there were the five actions that they took, but there was also a set of four attributes at the end of the report that allowed them to respond well And one of them, to the point that you just said, Mike, was strong mission, values, and culture. And these networks are serving a very high percentage of disadvantaged kids, a lot low income, free and reduced price lunch, ranging from 71% to 100% across the networks. But they're all committed to advanced learning, to high standards, to high graduation rates, to college entrance and college completion. And so this was basically them going back to the beginning. What's their mission? What are their values? What is their culture? Those were baked into their design principles. And to your point, they refused to dumb this down. They said, we're going to stabilize, but then we're going to honor the potential of these kids and do as much as we can, despite the fact that things are unbelievably hard. That was truly impressive. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that. This last lesson, and people, of course, can check out the report. I hope they will, was leaning into team teaching as an approach, especially around a common curriculum. In other words, if you were going to record lessons, you didn't need everybody to record their own lessons. You could have the best teachers record the lessons. And a lot of them did something like that. But that's a case where that's something that maybe the unions in a traditional public school setting would maybe be nervous about, selecting specialized roles for certain teachers that are not universal. They also maybe would push back on some of the other pieces of this design, like trying to have a full school day with expectations that teachers still are on the clock for six or seven or eight hours a day. Uh, So Greg, my question is this, and you do address this at the end of the report. These are high performing charter school networks, not just charter schools, but amazing organizations before the pandemic. It's not surprising that they did an amazing job during the pandemic, but 
are these things that can be replicated by other schools? Or is this just the case where these are almost unicorns? These are, it's a, such a special thing, these, these high-performing charter networks. And there's no way that traditional public schools or other smaller mom and pop charter schools could replicate what they're up to. How do you feel about that? I think most definitely these are practices, actions, and attributes that can be replicated, that should be replicated, regardless of the type of school, whether it's a charter public school, a district public school, a private school, down on through the list. As I look through the list of the actions that we found that allowed them to respond quickly and effectively to the crisis and stand up remote learning very effectively and the attributes that serve them well during that. You know, there are some advantages from uh, being a charter, certainly with the autonomy that comes from that and the mission that you have as schools of choice that are supposed to be innovative and laboratories of innovation in exchange for the accountability. But if you go through the practices of meeting the student's social, emotional, nutritional needs, placing tech in the hands of all the students and teachers quickly, creating the structure of the day with regular grading practices, reaching out so systematically like we just talked about. And to your last point here, this innovative team teaching approach, which I thought was very, very powerful, centered around a common curriculum. Absolutely, all schools can do that. Strong mission, values, and culture with excellent leadership, with strong talent and teams, and a vibrant school community and close relationships with families. That's the full set of the high-level findings. Mm -hmm. And those are things that there might be advantages here and there, but those are things that are going to serve schools very well in a crisis like this with remote schooling. But there are also some things that will serve schools well generally, regardless of if you're doing remote learning, regular school, or a blend. So there's some really interesting findings here. Well, well said, Greg. We've got to leave it there just for time. But man, there's so much to dig into. All kinds of great examples, details, quotes from teachers and principals that are really inspiring and and concrete ideas. We hope that wherever people teach or lead, that they will take a look at these. As you said, I think most of this is replicable. Of course, it's one thing heading into a crisis like this, if you've already got a great culture and a great school community and a lot of trust between teachers and leaders and parents and kids, all of this goes a lot easier. Hard to build that in the middle of the pandemic, but still a lot that can be taken away from here. So, hey, thanks so much for doing this, Greg, for all the great work that you did, interviewing the folks and writing it up and making it so compelling. And I hope that people will take a look. So again, Greg Vanerick, author of Schooling COVID-19, Lessons from Leading Charter Networks from Their Transition to Remote Learning. Thanks for joining us, Greg. Hope you come back sometime soon. Thanks, Mike. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. It's just so inspirational what those charter school networks were able to achieve last spring. I tell you, and I just don't get it how people could be against expanding these networks. I don't get it, Amber. I know. It's just so much good news, right? I mean, come on. It is. And certainly school choice, charter schools, a big focus of the first night at the Republican National Convention. Got a lot of love from Tim Scott and many others. Yes, indeed, indeed. And we heard from Friedrichs, right, about the Supreme Court case. Yeah, kind of fun to see education focused. A big focus, even if 
as always, there's pros and cons here. It doesn't necessarily help our friends on the left who are fighting for school choice and charter schools. But hey, eventually this political season will be behind us. Thank goodness. Yes. All right. Well, what you got for us this week? All right. We have a new study by three researchers from Vanderbilt, and they're examining the long-term impacts of academic acceleration. That means grade skipping, or in this case, also provision of advanced coursework like AP or dual enrollment, college access courses, that sort of thing. The premise is that there's a lot of concerns over long-term negative impacts of acceleration. Does it hurt kids socially, emotionally when they get accelerated in this way? And we don't really have a good answer to that. We've got some short-term studies that show no negative impact in the short term, but this one I think is one of the first reports, if not the report, to look at impacts over the long term for gifted kids. So it actually covers two longitudinal studies. I'll try to go quickly. We'll just summarize both. The first one surveyed about 1,600 participants from three cohorts of gifted students. They were identified through talent searches. Don't ask me too much about that because we don't get a lot of information about that. Between 1972 and 1983 as 13-year-olds, and all of them participate in this panel that Vanderbilt has put together of gifted youth. They represent a mix of the top 1%, top 0.5%, and top 0.01% of cognitive ability according to their SAT scores. So apparently these kids took the SAT pretty early. Each participant then completed three surveys. The first at age 13 when they were first identified, and they filled out a bunch of information about their family's SES, questions geared to gather information about their family's SES. Then they took the second one at age 18, and that asked them a bunch of information about acceleration opportunities that they had participated in during high school. So it asked them, when they were in high school, did you take AP courses? Did you take dual enrollment college courses? And did you skip a grade? I'm assuming that means ever, (laughs) you know, not high school. And then the researchers use a composite index. This gets a little confusing, but They use a composite index of all three of those things to measure acceleration. They weight AP and dual enrollment times one, but they weight grade skipping times four. So that gets a lot more weight. And then they use a second measure of acceleration, which is the age at which kids graduate from high school with the idea that if you entered kindergarten grade early or you graduated early, it would pick up on that. And then the third survey at age 50, that's when they assessed all the long-term stuff. They ask them a bunch of questions about well-being and personal growth and your purpose in life and self-acceptance and life satisfaction, all those types of things. This is amazing, yeah. Amber. Talk about a long-term, a long-term study. Long-term oh study, yes. Incredible. In a nutshell, they find that not only did the adults who experienced academic acceleration as students not suffer negative effects on their well-being, the typical student actually scored above the normative averages on their psychological flourishing scale and their life satisfaction scale. This was the case across both acceleration measures, so both that composite thing I just told you about and the age of high school graduation, so they did well on both those. A little variation between males and females or between adults who had experienced acceleration in the form of grade skipping versus the less intense acceleration in terms of AP and dual enrollment courses. And then real quickly, that that second study then aimed to replicate the first one I just told you about using a different set of kids. Um, It consisted of around 500 graduate students identified in 1992 from top STEM graduate institutions. They were surveyed at age 25 about their acceleration opportunities. 
in K-12. They were surveyed at age 50, just like the last group. Same questionnaire, basically same findings. They were all above average on all of those social and emotional well-being scales. So I think it's promising, right, that they saw these patterns across both studies. But I think we got to take it with a grain of salt because these are mostly correlational findings in nature. Participants aren't randomly assigned to schools, for instance, and we know virtually nothing about what else they experienced. They do control for SES. I told you they gather that information. In one of their analyses, the results are mostly unchanged. But they've got a great discussion at the end that we really don't know the, quote, causal antecedents that give rise to acceleration. They're not well understood. So they don't really even understand everything they should be controlling for in an empirical model to begin with. And they conclude that, anyway, fears of psychological harm accruing to gifted kids through acceleration appear to be unfounded over the long term, nonetheless. But obviously, we need to keep studying this stuff. So again, amazing that they had these long-term data. But yes, you nailed this issue, the correlation versus causation. And we just don't know about why some kids got to experience grade skipping, for example, and others didn't. And you can right. imagine that could have been because of chance. You know, you were lucky to be in a school that was willing to do grade skipping or not. You know, Amber, we know that for a long time, educators just hate this idea of grade skipping even though for some kids, it, it really helps. We've got to keep pushing on it. But you could also imagine, well, what if you have parents who are just pushier and they really advocated for their kids? And then those same parents might have kids who grow up to be happier for some reason, or maybe they're more affluent or they're in nicer neighborhoods. I mean, all these things, right, that, that could be correlated. I also do wonder with these, as you get super long-term studies, you also wonder about who falls out of the sample, mm-hmm. right? Maybe because people die. I mean, hopefully not by 50, but... Yeah, right. But, but by the way, their response rates were pretty good, 78%. Right, but you do wonder if people who are less happy are less likely to fill out the survey. There's all this stuff on happiness, the happiness curve, which I'm particularly interested in because it turns out that I am at the exact age at the, the very bottom of the happiness curve, according to a lot of these <laughs> really? studies. But you do wonder, it's as people get happier as they get past middle age. But you also wonder like if the less happy people are the ones who pass away and who die. Sure, the 80-year-olds who survive or are still living are happy, but maybe their less happy peers didn't make it that long. So you're questioning whether any of this is about acceleration at all. <laughs> well, look, these are questions to have, but I think still the point is there's no evidence that this is bad for young people. And If a kid is bored, if the school really doesn't have a lot to challenge them with at grade level, allowing them to skip a grade, you know, again, this conventional wisdom, oh, they're going to suffer socially. They're suffering socially by being on grade level, probably, right? Bored to tears. Let them do it. I'm trying to think about what teachers, you think that's their concern is the social emotional stuff? Or why Mm -hmm. do you think schools have such a hard time embracing this? No, I think it is the social and emotional stuff. Look, I'm sure that there are examples of kids who have not done well. And so if a principal remembers, oh, we tried that once and this kid really had a hard time. There's also just this bias against gifted kids, right? Maybe we need to encourage, you you tell an elementary school principal, look, you know, the best time to do this is at the end of fourth grade. They get out of your, we'll get out of your hair, right? We won't right. be here for fifth grade. <laughs> and that right. will be the right. problem right. of the, the middle kids, school. Right. And the kid's going to have a whole new set of peers anyway. Yeah. That, those kids aren't going to know, oh, you're the smart kid who got bumped up. 
So they're not going to suffer that sort of stuff you might get from your peers. Especially now that red shirting is so common in so many schools. I mean, it's not like every kid is the exact same age anymore in every grade. All right. Well, good stuff, Amber. Really, really exciting. Yeah. Fun to see long-term studies. Of course, (laughs) because it's so long-term, it's going to take a while until some of the more modern rigorous methodologies will be available for the initial data collection, right? (laughs) Um, So we have to sort of deal with what we had from way back then. Yes. Yes, we did. All right. Well, I'm afraid that is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week. I'm Amber Northern. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org. 